Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, December 4th, we're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-13. to In today's text, St. Paul brings up the example of Old Testament Israel in the wilderness as an example to warn the Corinthians against putting God to the test in matters of idolatry. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Carl Roth. Pastor Roth serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, Pastor Roth, give us some context. What do we need to know about this epistle and what Paul's been talking about leading up to this section in chapter 10? 1 Corinthians is one of Paul's longer epistles, and um, however, unlike Romans, which is of comparable length, 1 Corinthians deals with a lot more very specific issues that are happening in the Corinthian congregation, whereas Romans is much more theological and uh, historical in general. Uh, 1 Corinthians really gets into the weeds and in some cases makes it a little bit difficult to know exactly what's going on. Uh, because the problem with epistles is that you only get one side of the correspondence, not to mention oral con- um, reports that have been passed back and forth. So some there's a few places that we come to in 1 Corinthians where we're not exactly sure what questions Paul is answering. This is not a problem for our text today. This uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 13 uh, is, is actually um, a little bit more like some of his other epistles, where he's referring back to the Old Testament a lot, using it as examples. So whereas he deals with casuistry in many parts of 1 Corinthians, um, here it, it is actually... Um, probably firmer ground. I don't think there's any, we don't, we're not going to have any trouble with the straightforward interpretation of this text today. Sure. So he's in a a part of this epistle where he's been answering the question of meat sacrifice to idols, which was especially in view in chapter eight, but has been in the background throughout chapter nine and into our text. It's going to start to come back up as we pick up more of these thoughts on idolatry. But in the conversation of this matter of meat sacrificed to idols, how does this section fit into that? Well, the Israelites, um, one of their primary problems was that they fell into idolatry and specific violation of the first commandment. And so we'll see in some of the examples given here um, how that actually works out in practice. What does it look like when you worship idols? What sort of sins do you fall into? So Paul's really quite brilliant, led by the Holy Spirit, of course, to uh, um, draw forth these particular texts as examples, um, or maybe even better, what I'll argue, prefigurements um, of what God does in response to both faithfulness and unbelief. At the end of chapter 9, as he was talking about his own preaching among the Corinthians and and his situation using his freedom in Christ not to be paid to be all things to all people— the chapter closed with Paul saying that he acted as an athlete, one who disciplined his body, because he did not want to be disqualified after preaching to others. It seems that what's happening here at the beginning of 10, then, is he, he's telling the Corinthians, hey, if, if I could be disqualified and I need to remain self-disciplined, then you need to as well. And here's some examples from the Old Testament that back that up. 
Yeah, every year in the one-year series of uh, readings in the, in church, uh, this text from 1 Corinthians 9 comes up and bleeds into 1 Corinthians 10. And every time I read those words of Paul, it, it really is a gut check for me that as a pastor, you know, I, I cannot, uh, you know, operate from a place of fleshly security and um, can't be presumptuous, but always need to discipline myself, first of all, in the same way that we as pastors preach to ourselves first, or at least should preach to ourselves first, everything that we preach to our hearers, so also should we, like Paul, set a good example in self-discipline, not being uh, self-indulgent. And this ties in really nicely with uh, the Advent season that we're now in, uh, with uh, it being a penitential season, historically oriented towards fasting, prayer, meditation, good works. So... Um, this is a great text to get us ready for uh, the rest of Advent. Even though the world around us looks a lot like Christmas, you know, it's uh, it's not Christmas in the church. So. That's right. We're still preparing. And and even as we think about Advent, that, that preparation then is not only for Christmas and to celebrate December 25th, but even more so it's a preparation to receive the Lord's coming, which that will play yeah. into Paul's argument in this text as well, that we're at the end of the ages. Yeah, exactly. And uh, let's just uh, review briefly what Paul actually says that he does in order to prevent being disqualified. Uh, he literally pummels his body and enslaves it, lest he be disqualified. So this this is not uh, asceticism. This is not extreme you know, like flagellation of the body or anything like that. But it is very careful about what he does with his body on a daily basis, including the foods and drinks that he puts into them. And uh, and as we'll see in, in 1 Corinthians 10, there's also the sexual immorality angle that Paul addresses. Yeah, and that that's going to become, again, important for what he's been saying about meat sacrifice to idols. But even the larger theme within the epistle, you know, he's been dealing with this probably what's a saying among the Corinthians, all things are lawful for me. But as he said previously, well, not everything's helpful, and and I won't be enslaved by anything. That, that those are the matters when we think about our Christian freedom, that we better be very careful that we don't use things that are unhelpful for us or things that will enslave us, and to watch out lest our flesh get the better of us as we think we're, we're too strong. So we're touching on a number of things that, that Paul's going to bring up. Maybe we should just read the text here, and, and we can talk more carefully about it as we, as we have it. So 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 1. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the, and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all ate the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. That's our text for today. That's 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Roth, he says, for I want you to know brothers. And he, he then tells them what he wants them to know. Give us the, what's he talking about here at the Old Testament? Yeah, first of all, we shouldn't skip over that little word for, because it's one of these logical connectors that so often appears uh, that, that are easy to pass over. But he's connecting this section with what came before. Lest I myself be disqualified after preaching to others, or I don't want, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers. So he's He's connecting that <clears throat> disqualification theme into here and then providing all these Old Testament examples. Um, furthermore, he refers to our fathers. And this is a very interesting phrase because he's going to talk about the Israelites, whereas we know most of the first Corinthians were probably Gentiles who had become Christians. Mm. I mean, I think we can assume that there were some former Jews or Jewish Christians now in Corinth, but overwhelmingly it's going to be a Gentile congregation. But it's really cool that he calls them our fathers because uh, this, these, these fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, um, oftentimes have been claimed by Jews as their forefathers and theirs alone. But in fact, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses were all Christians. They were the only way to be a child of Abraham is to be in Christ. That's exactly what Abraham did. And we're actually going to get Christ mentioned as being with Israel in the wilderness. So Moses knew Christ just as we know Christ. Um, so so this, is, this is about our fathers. We read the Old Testament as our story too. And so the Christian church is the true Israel, as Paul says in Galatians 6. And so the Israelites of the Old Testament are our fathers as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. And as you said, when you read Acts 18, where Paul first visits Corinth, you do see that, yes, there are, there are some Jews who receive his message in the synagogue, but he also leaves the synagogue because he has been rejected by many. So you have a, a lot of Gentiles, and yet these are their fathers. So this is, this is our history, the, the Passover. That's the rescue that God gave to our people, to his people. These are our fathers Gentiles and Jews alike who are in Christ. So what, what does he say then about our fathers? Uh, what events does he particularly bring up in these first couple of verses? So the cloud was with the Israelites by day, a pillar of fire by night, and then that uh, the Lord then they also passed through the Red Sea. And I want to emphasize the word all here. Um, we're going to get this several times. So there's an objective or I guess you'd say universal participation in these events. Now, later on in this text, Paul is going to move more in the direction of the subject, subjective, um, actual you know, re rejection or acceptance of the Lord's word. But the redemption was for all of them. You know, in the same way that Christ died for all, in Adam all die and Christ shall all be made alive, things like that, those objective, universal statements from the New Testament. This is similar. Um, all were redeemed from, from Egypt. All were um, under that same cloud. All passed through the Red Sea together. Now, the way that they responded to the Lord is going to differ, but the Lord didn't leave any of them out, just in the same way that he has not left any of us out. We can go up to anybody we meet on the street and say, Jesus died for you. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So 
all are under the cloud, all pass through the sea. This phrase, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, maybe sounds a little strange to us. What does it mean that they were all baptized into Moses? Well, I think, uh, you know, we had that phrase through the sea, and so they all passed through the Red Sea with the the wall of the water on the right and left, and this was this was God doing it, of course. And so, in the same way that Noah was saved through water, the Israelites are saved through passing through the Red Sea. So it's a baptism of sorts, or a prefigurement, or type of baptism. And actually, Luther picks up on this in the flood prayer that he uh, that he offers in his baptismal rite. Um, he even specifically calls the passing through the Red Sea a, a type or a prefigurement of holy baptism. And so that's the event that uh, Paul is referring to here. Um, we'll, we can pick up on the odd phrase, into Moses, which strikes us as, as strange. I'd also mention the, uh, the Easter Vigil, which is historically a, a time when baptisms um, were performed, <clears throat> is, is uh, appoints the, the passing through the Red Sea as one of the, uh, the, the readings for that day. Um, okay, so we have the Red Sea as as a type and a pattern, a prefigurement of Christian baptism. Uh, the into Moses uh, refers back to uh, what the Lord um, said. Well, what Moses writes about uh, the Israelites in Exodus 14. He says, they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And that, that's always struck me as a little strange, right? We normally think of believing in Jesus, believing in God, but no. They believed in, in Moses, not because he was divine, but Moses, like a sacrament almost, had God's word attached to him. The Lord had told the Israelites, this is the guy who's my mouthpiece. You need to listen to him. As Jesus would later say of the apostles, he who hears you, hears me. Um, Jesus will say the Pharisees and the scribes sit on the seat of Moses, so you should do what they tell you. Don't practice what they do, but do what they tell you. So Moses had this office, the sort of office of the, the holy ministry, and he was God's mouthpiece. And so they believed in him because he had God's word attached to him. Yeah, and so in that sense, they're baptized into Moses. And this would, uh, in that sense, I suppose, Moses, we might say, serves as a yep. type of Christ in that way. Precisely. And, and now the difference is, well, the type is never, you know, the, the real thing. Um, that's why in Colossians 2, for example, Paul will talk about types being shadows of things to come. Um, you don't really get much satisfaction from the shadow of a, you know, a bottle of Gatorade or something like that, right? I mean, it's the actual Gatorade that does it. You can see the shadow. You might anticipate I'm about to get some of it, but it's not going to do me any good. Um, so in Christ, there's, there's not only is he the divine son of God in contrast to Moses, but we also then in baptism are, are actually incorporated into him. We have union with him. So this believing in Moses and, and participating in the same baptism in the Old Testament is not identical to what we experience in the New Testament, which is a far deeper reality, nothing short of communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All right, so he, Paul brings up the matter of baptism for the Old Testament Israelites and sees the the type of Christ and the type of baptism for them. It also seems that he, he's got a type of the the sacrament of the altar here as he brings up the matter of spiritual food and to drink in the next verse. Absolutely. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. 
So there's a sort of objective uh, reality. They, they consumed these things, and it wasn't their faith that made them spiritual food. It wasn't their faith that made it a spiritual drink. Um, and so we can kind of push that through also. And as we're distributing the Lord's Supper, I don't say, if you believe this is the body of Christ, or if you drink, this is the blood of Christ. No, everyone who comes to the table receives these same things. And we're going to see a little bit later how receiving them wrongly or unworthily is very harmful. Uh, the word spiritual is crucial. Uh, Paul uses this term in several places, uh, interpreting spiritual truths, spiritual spiritual things for spiritual people. I think the most logical way of taking this word is as from the Holy Spirit and filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, my words are spirit and they are life. That means that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit um, and and also convey the Holy Spirit. Um you know, Luther actually in the large catechism mentions the one of the gifts of the Lord's Supper as being uh, it brings with it the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, I almost wonder if he's picking up on this, this first Corinthians passage that it's while the Lord's Supper is not a spiritual food and drink in the sense of being symbolical or anything like that. It is nonetheless because it is the body of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit. This, of course, is all possible, and we're going to get the mention of the rock being Christ here in a second. Um, this, is a, this, of course, ties in beautifully with the New Testament, where the, the Messiah has the Holy Spirit without measure. Christ is anointed with the Holy Spirit, and so it's really amazing that he's the spiritual rock in the Old Testament, filled with the Holy Spirit, giving out this spiritual food, this spiritual drink, for the nourishment, not only of the body, but also of the souls of the people. Yeah, just on this this word spiritual, I, I think what you're saying is very important that this indicates, you know, that it comes from the Holy Spirit especially, but it doesn't mean that it's non-physical. This is actually physical food that they're eating, physical drink that they're drinking. It's spiritual not because of whether it's material or physical, but rather because of its source. And I think that's something that that's helpful elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, for example, in chapter 15, when he talks about a spiritual body— is not going to be in a non-physical mm -hmm. body, but one that's given by the Spirit. And I think it's also especially helpful in our day and age, in which many people have this idea that spiritual things aren't very spiritual if they are physical, or they, they want to separate those things, and that's just not the way the New Testament no. or the Old Testament speak. It's not. I mean, it, it, it sounds very much like Plato, you know, the, the sort of ancient Greek metaphysics, um, which makes a sharp distinction between material things and spiritual things. And early, um, the, the Gnosticism, which was a heresy in the early church, um, you know, opposed matter over against spirit and thought that spirit was the most important thing. And in some sense, we want to actually escape the shackles of our body and be freed from them so we can be pure spirit. And you see Gnosticism rearing its ugly head again and again, and I think it's particularly virulent today. And uh, we just have to really define the term carefully when we're discussing spiritual, because spiritual spirituality is such a, a, a commonplace term used today. You know, um, I think think about Oprah Winfrey and you know all the the sort of gurus that she brings on, and and so you'll hear people even today say, "I'm I'm spiritual but not religious." Um, but Christian spirituality is, is, is exceedingly tangible. And so the words water, bread, and wine uh, of the, uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, 
God became flesh and dwelt among us. Christian spirituality is going to be all intimately tied with the body of Jesus and the gifts that he attaches um, to his body uh, through his word. Yeah, because, and I'm glad you made that connection to Christ being the one who has the Holy Spirit with fullness. I mean, as the Old Testament foretold Isaiah chapter 11, that he receives the the Spirit in in its in full in his full measure. That's why then the body of Christ connected to spiritual things this is fantastic stuff. And I think it helps us to understand then what Paul says when when this maybe is even more remarkable to us than the being baptized into Moses where he writes that they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. I, I suppose there's a number of things that are remarkable. First, the idea that a rock is following them. I mean, we've got a rock, and water comes forth from it in a couple places in the Old Testament. What's the idea of the rock following them before we get to the rock being Christ? Yeah, I think I read in the commentary that there was there was some Jewish legend about this kind of like portable rock that went with the Israelites, and they were able to just drink from it wherever they went. And you know, there's no no evidence for that. It's a really cool idea. Um, but anyway, rock is just a, a very common term used to describe God in the Old Testament. And it really emphasizes his dependability, what you can rely on. Um, but here, Paul is just, yeah, he seems to be uh, very clearly expressing that the pre-incarnate Son of God was actually there with the Israelites. And so when we read you know, the Lord came down and visited with Abraham, you know, in Genesis 18, maybe even actually definitely even when the Lord comes down in, in Genesis 3 and walks and talks with Adam and Eve or 2, chapter 2, before everything falls apart. And then the Lord comes back. Um, this is the Son of God who's, who's um, not yet taken up a permanent physical tabernacle, but is nonetheless able, just like the angels, of appearing in, as flesh and blood. And so Christ in the Old Testament, uh, this is probably the strongest passage for it. In Luke 24, when Jesus says, you know, everything written in the Old Testament is about me, this is one of the great uh, passages you can point to and say, ah, now I, I can recognize Christ is all over the place. But this is one of the more tangible, and obvious places where he's with them. Mm, right. So when yeah, the people of Israel, they actually have Christ with them. Yeah. This also, it just as a, a way of think, thinking about, I suppose, Christology as well as the, the Trinity, this would be a passage that would at least point toward the, the fact that the Son of God is eternal, that, that He is true God, if, if that's what, I mean, if, if we're going to connect those dots with Paul. Absolutely. I mean, in his uh, prayer in John 17, Jesus you know, says, glorify me with the, present, uh, with the glory that I had with you before the world was created you know, before the foundation of the world. So obviously, you know, Jesus, um, before, Abraham was, before Abraham was, I am. You know, like this is a long time after what we're dealing with here is, is a long time after Abraham. And Jesus says, I was there before him. So the, the um, pre-existence of the second person of the Trinity is, is all over the place. And this is a great example of it. All right, so the rock was Christ. That is the the source of the spiritual drink that the people of Israel received. And again, as you noted, in these first four verses, we have all multiple times. They all were under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses. They all ate and drank the same spiritual food and drink which came from Christ. But that all changes in verse 5. 
Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. No, helps with this transition Paul makes. Yeah, it's pretty abrupt. Um, so we go from all to not all, and actually very few. Um, hmm. So if we follow the Israelites through the, the wilderness, we're going to see that uh, it starts out with, you know, 603,550. Um, I think that's just the, the man of fighting age, not including the Levites, and so not women and children. So, you know, we estimate 2 million plus people are there. Um, but what's, what's kind of depressing, really, is that there really are only two so, uh, that get to go into the promised land. Uh, that's Joshua uh, and Caleb, because they gave um, the, the proper true report of what it was like in the promised land and tried to encourage the people, hey, the Lord's with us, and he's told us we can take this place now. And then it's the other spies who say, no, 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 we're going to get devoured by these giants and monsters that are in the land, and so we can't do it. And then, of course, the, they, uh, the Lord says, well, you're, you're going to get your punishment for that. And then the people are like, oh, wait, we can still do it. And so they try on their own, and then they get destroyed. And so anyway, yeah. Most of them fall in the wilderness, and and in fact, the uh, the literal translation here is is that they were strewn about in the wilderness. So that's how the the mm. Moses describes it. Actually, the bodies are going to be scattered in the wilderness, the scene of carnage. Um, so so it's very very few that make it into the promised land. Mm. Right, and so this is going to be where Paul now is going to. Uh, come back to that warning that he had spoken first about himself, that he disciplines his own body lest he be disqualified. That's what he wants for the Corinthians as well, because he doesn't want them to be disqualified. And as an example of those who took the Lord's gifts for granted, who received the Lord's gifts and all of them received it, he's going to hold up the Israelites as that example so that the Corinthians now, and we as well as readers of this epistle, can learn from their example and not fall into those same sorts of sin and idolatry. And we'll pick up those warnings in particular more on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Carl Roth this morning about 1 Corinthians 10. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Who does Lutheran Church Extension Fund serve, you ask? It's simple. We serve Lutheran Church Missouri Synod ministries and church workers with loans and ministry services. And it's faithful Lutherans like you, church members and church workers alike, investing with LCEF that makes it possible for LCEF to serve these ministries. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, December 4th. We're studying 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13 with Pastor Carl Roth. 
He serves at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. Pastor Roth, in verse 5 of our text, Paul makes this transition. Nevertheless, with most of them, that is most of the Israelites, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. What does it mean that God was not pleased with the Israelites? Fundamentally, it means that they didn't believe. Most of them did not believe, did not live in repentance, and gave over themselves to their sinful flesh. And I think this is a great, again, context of Advent and and Paul's emphasis on self-discipline. This is really important for us that we want to please the Lord. And we actually, if we're following our catechism, pray for this every morning. We pray in Luther's morning prayer that all my doings and life may please you. Paul says elsewhere, we make it our aim to please the Lord. So as dear children try to do for their dear fathers, um, seeking to please them, um, this is the goal and orientation of our Christian lives. So I think we, we shouldn't neglect that, that little detail there, that pleasing the Lord is something that we have the capacity for, only by the Holy Spirit, of course, but it's something we should pray for and aim for. Yeah, the Luther's morning prayer, I think, is very, very apt for us to to use that prayer, to note how this is a prayer that the Scriptures give to us, that we would be pleasing to the Lord through His gift of faith. Now, as the text then continues, Paul goes on to say, well, how does the Old Testament relate to you? You Gentiles, right? We talked about that. These things took place as examples for us. Before we look at the examples he gives, somebody talk about that role of the the Old Testament for us as Christians. Sure. Now, the ESV translates it as examples, but I've used the term prefigurements a couple times. Um, examples, okay, because we can think of positive examples and negative examples. You know, the best way to learn something is by following the Word of God, right? And then uh, another great way of learning is from uh, people's good examples, and then also from bad examples. You don't want to do what they did. Those are all good ways of learning. But um, I think here uh, it's a little bit stronger of a term. These prefigurements or actually pre-types or type out types um, are, are actually very strong images of the way God works in the world and what he does to punish evil and to reward good. So it's not just warnings, it's not just uh, examples, it's, it's prefigurements of how, how God's going to act with the church. Okay, so he's, he's showing you already the way that he will respond to you by the way that he's responded in the past, exactly, something like that. Exactly, and, yeah. and so while most of them did die in the wilderness, we do have the example of Joshua and Caleb who were faithful to the Lord and were richly rewarded for um, their obedience. So, you know, while proportionally the number of positive examples is pretty small, um, it is nonetheless there as as a, a motivating factor for us. And that's what the phrase continues. It's a purpose clause. These things are prefigurements or examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. This should be the result of having heard or seen what the what what happened to the Israelites. So that when he says that we may not desire evil as they did, does that really like introduce then the the several examples where he says don't do this or don't do don't do that like they did? Absolutely. And this desiring evil um, is is uh, the Greek term is epithumia, um, and it's it it's what we translate as covetousness, and it's exactly the word from the the tenth commandment, right? 
um, don't covet. And uh, interestingly enough, it's concupiscentia in Latin, which is where we get the word concupiscence, oh. which is really kind of the root sin. It's this restless craving and desire for um, things that are more, better, or different than what the Lord has given us. So it's the opposite of contentment. So uh, yeah. whereas Paul had identified the source of all contentment in every situation in Christ, our sinful flesh is restless and never content because it has this concupiscence, this this craving for satisfaction. Yeah, that, that's a really, I think, an important thing for us to, to keep in mind here, the connection to the ninth and 10th commandments, which come at the end of the, the commandments. And we are perhaps prone to think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Those are only my thoughts. And yet Paul picks oh. it up here at the beginning of this list, and he's going to connect it to idolatry, which, of course, takes us back to the first commandment. Absolutely. I mean, in, in Romans 7, when Paul wants to grapple with what sin is, he doesn't go to the third, fourth, fifth, sixth commandments. He goes to covetousness. Um, because I think covetousness is actually the most um, kind of psychological of sins listed in the, the Ten Commandments, right? The rest of them more or less have to do with, with actions and words. But this one has to do with the heart. And Luther really picks up on this in the large catechism and just drives home the fact that the, the Ninth and Tenth Commandments, if you made it all the way down to the Ninth and Tenth Commandments without sinning, which hardly seems possible, um, the Ninth and Tenth are going to get you because your heart is always restless. It's never content. And, and so I, I think that uh, dwelling on covetousness is actually probably you know, a great way of diagnosing your own sins. And it's oftentimes, uh, you know, it, it's bad. The, the, out, of the, out of the heart come all the, the bad things that Jesus lists that we do. So if you want to get to the root of sin, it's going to be in the heart, and covetousness is the diagnosis. So that's where Paul starts there in verse 6, that we might not, not desire evil, that we might not be covetous as they did, they were. And then he begins to list several Old Testament examples. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What's in view there? All right, yeah, there actually are five, uh, five Old Testament examples. So um, this is the first, and so this is... Uh, the Israelites uh, are, are out in the wilderness, and they're, they're hungry, and they're craving the flesh pots in Egypt, the leeks and the onions and all the good food that they had back there. And they say to the Lord, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Why don't you just kill us now? Um, so this is, this is a, a longing for food, but it's really much more than that. Food itself is morally neutral, and this is a key point in 1 Corinthians, right? There's, there's really nothing inherently immoral about the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. It's the context in which it's being sacrificed and consumed that makes it evil. Same In the same way here is, it's not that the, the meat pots and the, the onions and leeks back in Egypt were um, sinful. It's that it's what they represent. It's that the Israelites would rather go back into slavery, being surrounded by false gods, idolatrous worship, the impurity associated with it. They'd rather be in that context and with full bellies than to be living from the hand of the Lord to provide for them in the wilderness. So this is a longing to go back from redemption into slavery, from the new life into the old life. Now that that's, I think, connected especially to the thought of desiring evil and the covetousness in verse 6. So we've got one example there, 
And then the second example would come up in verse 7, this matter of idolatry, where Paul actually quotes, I think it's from, from Exodus 32, we're talking golden calf here. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, so the next example is golden calf. Now, both of these kind of, you know, can can um, make us think about 1 Corinthians 8 and 10, where Paul talks about sacrificed idols. But the stronger connection is found in this second example. Um, so this is just the, you know, if you ever wanted a, a example number one of, how just telling people what to do, giving them law, doesn't actually produce the results you think. Just look at the 10, you know, like look at the giving of the 10 commandments. You know, it's just a little bit later that they go and do this. So human beings need more than just words to tell them what to do and what not to do. They need some sort of motivation. And at this point, the Israelites um, were motivated by their flesh. They were persuaded by Aaron to to worship the golden calf. And in a sense then, um, had a, a party for the idols, right? So eating and drinking um, at, at, to celebrate these new idols that that, a, that Aaron says brought you out of Egypt. Um, not only were they eating and drinking in honor of idols, so this ties in with 1 Corinthians 8, 8, so this is Paul's connection there, but it says they rose up to play. Now, what's wrong with playing? I mean, like, you know, everybody needs to play from time to time, right? All rest and or all work and no play, you know, makes us sad. Well, no, there's actually sexual overtones to this. And we see some examples in in the Hebrew of Genesis 26 and 39 that that very strongly connect play and sexuality. As Hebrew often does, it it cloaks the um, you know, more R-rated stuff in PG-rated terms or G-rated terms. Um yeah. And and this is really a, a great example to adduce for the Corinthians as well, because as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 5, there was a form of incest going on among the Corinthians that isn't even tolerated among pagans. In 1 Corinthians 6, we hear about people sleeping with prostitutes. And in six, uh, first, also in 1 Corinthians 6, we, we hear a whole list of people committing sexual immorality that will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul's really strongly emphasizing what he's already discussed before and now giving a biblical example of how God will treat that. Yeah, and this is something that we see, especially throughout the Old Testament, the connection between the first and sixth commandments, that idolatry and adultery are often spoken of almost interchangeably and usually go hand in hand, that when you see one, you've got the other. And so to, to see that here in, in verse 7 is not surprising. It really is, and it also is a nice commentary on our, our culture. I mean, you know, with a, a sexually libertine culture, um, there's there's either atheism or or lots of idols floating around in the background. So I think the sexual sin is almost a symptom of the, the problem, actually is specifically a symptom of, of the idolatry. Now, Paul brings up the matter of sexual immorality explicitly in the next verse. In verse 8, he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. What's the Old Testament background here? This is from Numbers 25, and the... Uh, the Israelites are, are invited by the Moabites to participate in some fertility rites for Baal of Peor. And so um, naturally this involved the Israelite men having intercourse with the Moabite women. And so we see um, more than 20,000 corpses again scattered in the wilderness. This is one of the more, you know, like statistically significant uh, blows. I mean, that's 24,000 out of 600,000 is a pretty good chunk. Um, so if they didn't get the message from this, I don't think they ever would. 
It's interesting that Revelation 2 actually mentions this event. It says that Balaam uh, had counseled Moab to tempt Israel towards this and uh, incite them to eat meat sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. So I think there's an interesting connection here between 1 Corinthians 10 and uh, Revelation. Hmm. Yeah, and in, in Revelation, this gets attached to to Balaam as yeah. the one who, yeah. right, the, the prophet. The famous yeah. Balaam and his donkey, you know, um, and uh, he wasn't a good guy. No, no, he really wasn't. And um, but his donkey was awesome. And as we <laughs> we pastors, you know, like to say, if God could speak through Balaam's donkey, he can even speak through me. So. All right. So to but to Paul's warning, particularly watch out for sexual immorality. That's another another warning to receive from Israel. Watch out for this as a, a prefigurement. In verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. So talk about this matter of, of putting Christ to the test. Yeah, this is great. Um, so I, uh, I, I, I'm, I've been recording the entire Bible in a year for my congregation, um, and I, I stumbled on this phrase in Numbers 14, where the Lord says, they've put me to the test these 10 times and have not obeyed my voice. I thought that was so striking because I'm not sure you could go through and enumerate the 10, but it's, it's a somewhat similar to the 10 commandments, right? That you, you know, like how exactly do you break down the 10 commandments? That's not the easiest yeah. thing in the world to do. And, and so there's a significance to this number 10, but anyway, the point is that they tested God a lot. Right. And, um, yeah. and, and so, um, how do you put Christ to the test? And it's going to be related to some extent with, uh, with, with the grumbling um, against the Lord. And I'll pick up a little bit more about that. But here we're talking about Numbers 21 and the famous event uh, with the, the fiery serpents. Um, so, and also we see here that this is a sin directly against Christ and um, complaining about the spiritual food that he had given the Israelites in the Old Testament. So they're, they're grumbling against the spiritual food of the manna is actually sinning against Christ. That really does make you think a lot about the Lord's Supper too. That it's not just, you, yeah. you know, I always point out in 1 Corinthians 11, you can't really sin against bread and wine, right? I mean, no. you can sin against another person. Maybe you can even sin against an animal, I guess. But I mean, against bread and wine, you can't sin. But if it's the body and blood of Christ, which it is, you can most certainly sin against it. And that's exactly what the Israelites are doing here. Yeah, yeah, it's it's remarkable to see how Paul already in this section is is building that foundation that he's going to continue with as he goes into the Lord's Supper already in chapter 10 in part, but then especially in chapter 11, as, as you're saying. So we want to keep these things in mind as we continue to think about how Paul will talk about the Lord's Supper in the Corinthian church in the coming verses and chapters. So we've got the the bronze serpent, the fiery serpents there in verse 9, Numbers 21. In verse 10, now it's nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. This is the last example. As, as you pointed out already, Pastor Roth, when you think about the grumbling of Israel in the wilderness, it seems like it's always happening. Is there anything in particular with the grumbling that's being referenced here, especially with this mention of the destroyer? I think there is, but I want to make one comment about just grumbling in general. Um, because one of the, the first scenes where the grumbling occurs is at Massa and Meribah, and that's recorded in Exodus 17. And I think they're, they're thirsty. And but the central question is this, is the Lord among us or not? 
That's what their grumbling is. And I think that is so profound that fundamentally, you know, our grumbling and complaining uh, stems from the fact that God is either apparently absent or not acting the way that we expect him to. So, you, you know, again, getting down to that first commandment issue, what's at the heart of these, you know, all of our sin is the Lord among us or not. And what a joy it is as Christians, you know, especially as we're getting close to Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, our Lord Jesus Christ has said, behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So we as Christians never have to grumble or complain, especially asking whether the Lord is among us or not. Well, verse 10 is a little tricky. Um, you know, if you have a, an annotated um, English Standard Version Bible, I've got a little reference here that, that points to Numbers 14. Um, Dr. Lockwood, in his commentary, however, thinks that a more fitting Old Testament um, event uh, that, that is described here is probably num uh, Numbers 16, which deals with Korah's rebellion. Um, I'll confess ignorance here. But either one would work, right? I mean, like, there's so many examples in the Old Testament of the people behaving badly that, you know, you just throw a dart and you're going to hit one, right? <laughs> so, um, right. but either way, I think that the Korah's Rebellion one would be very interesting if that's what Paul had in mind here. We do have a, an well, part of the Apocrypha is the, the, the Book of Wisdom actually does refer to the destroyer of Exodus 12, which is the Passover is referred to number 16. And so if Paul is connecting destroyer and grumbling, I think that's probably why um, Lockwood concludes that that's what Paul's referring to here. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think that it, the Korah's rebellion one is very fitting because we, we have the issue of Paul's apostolic authority being challenged. And so perhaps there are people grumbling against Paul's authority. Um, and so this is also a good morning for Christians that um, the pastor uh, operates in the stead of Christ and by the command of Christ, you might not like him personally. And if he does anything wrong, you need to correct him, right? But as far as the word that comes from his mouth, Jesus says, he who hears you hears me. And so this exa example of Korah and his family being um, swallowed up into the earth is a sharp sign of judgment against rebelling against the authority of the word. Yeah, I mean, the issue of factions that was yeah. so, so prominent in the first couple of chapters would fit well with a reference to Korah's rebellion. But again, as you said, throw a dart at the Old Testament, you're going to find Israel grumbling pretty close by. So with those examples, those prefigurements in mind, which Paul then will remind them, these things happened for that reason. They were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Help us into verse 11. Right. So um, the our instruction, written down for our instruction, is a phrase that occurs exactly the same in Romans 15, 4. And it's, it's one of my favorite passages, that everything written in the former days was written for our instruction, so that through, oh, hope, right, or through, uh, through the consolation of the Scriptures, we may have hope, right? So, so this, is, this is actually Paul trying to—this is why it reminds us that, that this is not purely a negative uh, example but is also given for our instruction and encouragement. That there are a lot of people Paul, Paul doesn't mention that were faithful, that remained steadfast. And, and um, anyway, so this is instructive for us on whom the end of the ages has come. So we could translate this as last days. Um, you, you know, this is a phrase that appears several times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 2, 
um, where Peter quotes Joel, um, we, we find out that in these last days, the spirit is going to be poured out. So, you know, from Pentecost on, Christians have no excuse for failing to recognize we live in the end times. We really are in the end times. In Hebrews 1, in many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So the central event of Christian history or of world history, the fundamental event and the inauguration of the last days occurs with the coming of Christ. First John 2 actually goes so far as to call it the last hour of this world. Mm. And it is uh, the end or goal of the ages has come. Right? When, when time was full, God sent his son to be born of the virgin. So we live in the fullness of time. So all this kind of like worry about like when the end is going to come, you know, that's we just finished the end of the church here. We're in Advent now. We're hearing a lot about this. It's really a joy for Christians, right? Jesus says, when, when you see the Son of Man coming, straighten up, look up, your redemption is drawing near. Because the Redeemer who gave, his, gave himself once for our sins is not coming to pay us back for our sins, but rather to save those who eagerly await him. Yeah, and Paul, at the beginning of this epistle, mentioned the fact that the Corinthians are waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're waiting for him, and they, they are trusting that he will sustain them to the end. So this, this end times uh, focus has been present within this epistle already. He brings it back here in chapter 10 for the purpose of strengthening and warning the Corinthians. So we have a, a, a warning, I think, in verse 12, watch out. But then a promise and encouragement in verse 13, God is faithful. Help us first with verse 12. And just by way of warning to you, Pastor Roth, we've got about five minutes. Okay, left. that's great. Um, okay, although I wish it were 50 more minutes, but um, we, of could, course. we could that's continue. Right. But, um, you know, we, we've got the famous quote from Proverbs, pride goeth before the fall, uh, and actually it's pride goeth before destruction, right? But um, And then the fall is mentioned in the next phrase. But anyway, um, th this is a, a, a classic warning that the minute we think that we're standing firm and become self-reliant, then that is when we're most likely to collapse. And so this is a great warning against any form of spiritual pride. Um, you know, like Augustine pointed to this drunk guy in the ditch one day and he said, but for the grace of God, go I, right? Or yesterday, uh, well, or today he, tomorrow I. You know, like that, that could be me tomorrow, if not for the grace of God. So this is, this is a, a, a great warning. Um, and, and, you know, how is it that when you're walking down the, the street, the best way to avoid falling, it's to keep your eye on the road because there's going to be potholes and stumbling blocks. And so this is um, why we pray that the Lord would guard our steps in the Psalms and why we also then don't live carelessly. We don't walk around daydreaming. We actually keep our minds fixed on Jesus. In verse 13, Paul does remind them that uh, they ain't seen nothing yet. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. That is, you're just suffering the same things that everyone else suffers. You haven't really moved on to like spiritual temptations yet or spiritual trials. So it's kind of like with, uh, you know, like, there's really no virtue in sobriety, for example, right? People, people oftentimes will, will talk a lot about how, you know, like their, their sobriety, they've overcome drug or alcohol addiction or whatever. Well, you know, I, I feel like saying, well, we really need to be praise, praising the people that, that weren't 
you know, drunk or drug abusing to begin with. Right. I mean, like um, because because being sober is the expectation and it's kind of like in that's what God expects of us. So it, it's to our shame if we've fallen into great sin. That's why we repent. We don't brag about our repentance. Um, we recognize we've fallen and the Lord is, has called us back. So the Lord has very high standards for our uh, our behavior. And uh, we as, you know, I don't know, lame sinners think that, oh, I avoided this little temptation. You know, I didn't eat that donut or whatever. And, and you know, give me a sticker. Well, that's ridiculous. You know, like the Lord expects us to avoid every temptation. And as Christians, we have the target placed on our back. Uh, the devil is going to attack us and he's going to move beyond those temptations that are common to man and attack us in our conscience. And so that's what Paul's warning against here. But the good news is he'll never let us be tempted beyond your ability. Will he let us give us more than we can handle? Absolutely. That's the, the misunderstanding of that phrase. He gives us more than we can handle every day, which leads us to prayer. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And so nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will always rescue us from temptation. Pastor Carl Roth is pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in Elgin, Texas. He's been helping us today to study 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Pastor Roth, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you, Pastor Apple. These things have been written as prefigurements for our instruction. The entirety of Scripture is given for that purpose, that we might continue in the true faith, not taking pride in ourselves, not thinking that our ability is strong enough, but rather trusting in God who is faithful, the one who was present with his Old Testament people is present among us in word and sacrament, and we cling to him and his promises. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about 1 Corinthians 10, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.